Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Yeah, sure, you motherfucking be Also mm-hmm. puns and word association. <laughs> Lots of word association. Our worst mm-hmm. word association. <laughs> Stick around for special thanks if you're interested in that. Um, you know what? Or don't. We're not going to judge you either way. <laughs> This week we have a very special fan pick. It is indeed we do by the fan picker Meg Williams, and the topic is crimes that inspired musicals. Hello, hello my lady. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. <laughs> Sorry, with a fringe on top. <laughs> Two All different right. songs. Oklahoma, where the wind Young comes. I'm doing a medley. Rain. So the fan picker Meg Williams is an actress who especially loves musical theater, and that is what prompted this pick. And I gotta say, I've had the more fun doing this uh, these notes than I have in a long time. So this is pretty great. I had fun. Yep. Lots of YouTube It's eye-opening. Yeah. I listened to a lot of musical theater on Spotify. It was great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's refreshing. Mm-hmm. What is our wine crime pairing? Nope. You're Kenyan. Oh, fuck it. Can we delete that I from the intro? I was just going to wait. I'm <laughs> Delete that? Delete saying who we are? Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I don't give a shit who we are. I'm Kenyan. <laughs> I'm Lucy. Who cares? <laughs> I'm Amanda. Fuck this whole thing. <laughs> Use promo code get fucked to listen to our podcast for free. <laughs> who are we? I don't fucking know. Who? I mean, who's anybody? What kind of question who is this? It's bullshit. All relative. What's with the third degree? Identity is subjective <laughs> What's with anyway. The third degree. <laughs> who's fucking asking? Who wants to know? <laughs> Uh, the wide crime pairing <laughs> is from our friends over at Wink Wine Club. They were one of our first ever sponsors, and they have, for some reason, hung on. Stuck God around. bless them. Hung in there. <laughs> they really have. And uh, they offer an incredible service that literally delivers wine to your home or your local Walgreens or where it is most convenient or for you to receive wine. Place. Yeah, my mom's done that. It's amazing. Um, So I highly recommend going to trywink.com forward slash gals. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com forward slash gals, where you will be greeted with an incredible inventory of wines. And if it's your first time perusing this inventory, you could opt to take a little flavor quiz to get an idea of maybe what is a good fit for you. Or you could just say, fuck it. I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff in my cart. (laughs) And if you do put a bunch of stuff in your cart, 
specifically four or more bottles. They take care of the shipping. And if it's your first order with Wink Wine Club and you use that promo code GALS, you get 20 bucks off your first box. Perfect. It's an incredible deal. And we typically will post on the wine tab of our website what the upcoming Wink pairings are going to be so you can get ahead of the game and drink along with us on Mm -hmm. the show. Mm -hmm. What a fun time we have with Wink. We have fun here. We have fun. Yeah. (laughs) We have fun here at Wine and Crime with our incredible sponsor, Wink Wine Club. Okay. Um, We are drinking the blend that I forgot the name of. I'm sorry. Okay. The Wall of Sound red blend. Get it? And assuming this is crimes that inspire musicals and listening to Kenyon sing is truly a treat, Wall of Sound red blend. It's overpowering. It is just a wall of sound. When we were on tour, she <laughs> was cracking me up because we would like be playing a mix and we'd all be singing along. And just without me even realizing I was doing it, every time Kenyon chimed in, I would just reach and turn the volume up a little bit. <laughs> 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 on the stereo. I caught it. It was instinctual. It was I did Pat not Lobbyan. even notice I was doing it. And she called me out <laughs> hard in the car. It's fine. No big deal. I am so sorry. What you lack in tone accuracy, you more than make up for in vigor <laughs> and excitement. You're, you're just happy to be here. And I love singing notes. with you. You can go deep. Or, I can. Oh, this girl can sing Tony Braxton better than anyone mm-hmm. I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Tony Braxton. Uh, Wall of Sound Red Blend is a California red blend that is predominantly Syrah and Malbec yummers, along with Mafave Grenache. Uh, Cab Sauv and Morverde. Mm. So this is a blend of a nice, bold, full-bodied grapes, which I really love. Uh, it's kind of fun because I imagine it's incredibly challenging to put together a blend like this because all of these varietals have such distinct flavor profiles each themselves yeah. on their own. There's a lot you of can them, find too. There's a lot of them, and you can find any of these varietals as a single varietal wine. Yeah. Uh, so the, this would probably be pretty tricky and take a lot of effort on the part of the winemaker to make a blend that works as well as this one out of all of these varietals. It was fermented in a stainless steel tank, so no wood touches this, just like me in my personal <laughs> life, um, <laughs> which helps to produce a fruit-forward big red with notes of dried cranberry, cherry, dark plum, savory spice, and a hint of leather. Also like your personal life. Precisely. (laughs) This wine is full-bodied with a slight sweetness and clocks in at about 14.2%. So a little... Oh, I just burped. Oh, my God. (laughs) The anticipation. Uh, It's a little on that higher end. A lot of uh, red wines are going to linger around 13%. This is going to give you an extra Mm, 1.2% to really get you through the day. (laughs) <laughs> really gets you through the day. Um, it is a the popper, morning. and we have cut Kenyon off completely <laughs> from being able to <laughs> pop wine this week. Um, because despite her being in possession of one of our incredible, nice pop winged wine openers available on our online store, wineandcrimepodcast.bigcartel.com, she still continues to struggle in such an entertaining and fun way. And we just really love her. But she's cut off. <laughs> But she's cut off today. Next week, it could be totally different. Today, no. 
I did already prep this though, and I I still use the wine key, like the restaurant style one that unfortunately we do not offer currently. So I have a different experience. But if you get it started, and then all you have to do is pull out. Now I'm saying <laughs> it can be hard to pa- pull out. A lot of folks it have can trouble be with hard that. to pull mm-hmm. out. Yeah, it's not a, a great form of takes wine skill. opening takes or birth control. It comes with its own dangers. Let's just say that. You should try uh, calendar cycling to get your wine open. <laughs> the instead. rhythm method. The rhythm method. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? I'm ready. going wrong. Okay. Let's do this. Ooh. Ooh. Responsible pap. Oh, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping <laughs> around the plane. <laughs> Oh, K L A H O M A H O M A Oklahoma. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Since we're we already going, <laughs> cheers. And Lucy, what are some uh, interesting musicals based on real crimes slash psychology behind those crimes? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't really know where to go with psychology background for this particular subject. So I'm just going to share with you some musicals that neither of the two of you are covering mm-hmm. that were also based mm-hmm. on Love real it. crimes. And I'm starting with my favorite. Mm-hmm. Chicago. Chicago. Doy. Chicago. Oh, Chicago. That title in town. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the musical was based on a play from 1926 by a woman named Maureen Watkins, who was a crime reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Oh, God bless you, Maureen. Mm-hmm. What a wild time. Chicago in 1926. Yeah. What, what a, I wouldn't give. What a great time to be alive. Right. Yeah. Well, what I wouldn't give to be a flapper on the wall at that time. <laughs> So she based the play that she wrote off of two sensational trials. The first was the 1924 trial of Belva Gartner, who was a cabaret singer charged with shooting her married lover, Walter Law, in a car. So to try to cover up the murder, not really sure what she was thinking, but she positioned... She was thinking pop six squish uh -uh, (laughs) uh-uh Cicero Lipschitz. (laughs) That's exactly what she was thinking. Spread eagle. (laughs) He ran into my knife. He ran into my knife ten times. (laughs) She positioned the gun, like, next to him, along with a bottle of bootleg gin, because, again, prohibition at this time. Frame him. Always frame him. Always. The cops did track her down, but she claimed to have been drunk and didn't remember anything. And apparently back then that was a viable defense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wish we were still in the law of the 20s. (laughs) Minus the prohibition thing. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. And like the, you know, a lot of things. Okay, Marital rapey things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Segregation, et cetera. Um, okay, so her attorney did convince the jury that he had shot himself and she was eventually acquitted and she inspired the character Velma Kelly in the play. Yes. Mm-hmm. This one is even better. The second was another murder that occurred just weeks later when Beulah Anon, who was married, shot and killed her lover, Harry Calstead, when he was leaving her and her defense was literally 
shooting him in self-defense when, quote, they both reach for the gun, 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 they both reach for the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, they both reach for the gun, for the gun. Isn't that incredible that that was her actual defense in real life? I love it. Yes. It's great. So she inspired the character of Roxy Hart, obviously. The, the two women met in Cook County Jail during their trials and became fake rivals for the tabloid headlines. <gasps> like that was a the Britney real Christina situation. Everybody's lips is gonna be Roxy. Roxy. We're gonna so go be to the insufferable drive. this episode. Okay, yes. This episode is also gonna be eight years long. <laughs> With all of our musical breaks. <laughs> go to the drive. Go all to the right. blog. I go have two photos of the women, and they're just Ooh. fucking fabulous. Which ones are they? I okay. do not see. It's two, one of them is a side-by-side of two wistful-looking women with amazing haircuts. Yep. Ooh, okay. Oh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Ooh, lots oh, they of side-sweeping and, and They look gel. like twins. Yeah, they I do, know. Now actually. that I'm looking at this, this might be a photo of the same person. I think it's two it's, of them. I think it's, they're separate. They look really similar. Oh, they're it's wearing really the same outfit. Okay, it's the same person. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Okay. Oh my god, the, this is incredible. The other one, the other one is like a newspaper clipping and the headline mm. reads Demand noose for prettiest woman slayer. Oh, uh, if that's not my epitaph, I don't know what <laughs> You're will doing be. something wrong. Oh There's who god. appears to be Teddy Roosevelt in the background, so we've got several key players in this one photo. Wow, I think that's just a fat white man, but close. No, the guy in the glasses with the hairline. Yeah, I don't think that's oh. Teddy Roosevelt. Well, I was joking, but the glasses okay. looked like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a comedy Kenyan show. gently Kenyan. trying to tell Lucy <laughs> that that's definitely not Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Whatever, moving on. Oh, honey, no. Okay. I was joking. They okay. both reach for the big stick, the big stick, the big stick. Oh, right. no, no, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> Teddy no. Roosevelt walks laughingly and no, carries a big stick. No, It was a terrible joke. No, It really no. was. <laughs> okay, moving on. I can't. Onions cut off from a lot of things. I pre-gamed. Let's, <laughs> let's keep this train a-rolling. Casual Tell Tuesday. Tell the people what you found in the bottom of your glass just now. <laughs> as we were prepping for this episode slash recording ads for another episode, I might have noticed after sipping on my wine glass for 20 odd minutes, not one, but two dead beetles at the bottom of it. <laughs> two. Yes. That photo. Well, will they come in pairs. They're the social blog. animals. Yeah, there's a photo. We'll put it on the blog. Okay, moving on. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So the play, The Producers, excellent play. I love mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. play. So when Mel Brooks, who wrote and directed it, his real name was Melvin Kaminsky, returned mm. from fighting in Europe in World War II, he began working in show business in various jobs. He worked for one producer who would seduce rich old ladies and convince them to fund his, like, shitty productions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he also met other producers who would cook the books to keep their terrible shows afloat. 
So these experiences, plus his desire to mock Hitler because of pers- mm-hmm. his personal Obviously. experience, came together to inspire his Broadway hit, The Producers. So if you've seen it, all of those are literal ele- like plot line elements of, of the plot. So Yeah, it's, the plot is pretty amazingly miraculous in that show. It's great. <laughs> it's apparently all based on kind of real stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there is a musical out there in the world called Bonnie and Clyde. I wonder what it's mm. about. And so the stories it's about Louise. of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were made into a musical in 2009. The music and lyrics were by Frank Wildhorn and Don Black, who are the same duo behind Dracula the Musical. Oh, <laughs> so now it's starring it. puppets. <laughs> Incredible. The play follows their young lives, meeting each other, and an ultra romanticized retelling of their super violent crime spree and also super violent deaths. Mm-hmm. It in- love it. It includes a song called "Dying Ain't Bad." <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, "Dying Ain't So Bad." Subjective. Oh, good. But okay. All right. And I don't really know how I feel about this one. I'm, I'm not sure why it's any different than the others, but for some reason, this one just disturbed me more than. Yeah, I can I think see there's, that. There's a lot to discuss about like the tastefulness or distastefulness of writing a musical about true crime, but also like, hello, our entire yeah. podcast. Yeah, we're not ones to talk. We're not ones <laughs> yeah. to talk. I did a sound of music rewrite cover based on a crime so on what? this podcast don't you remember oh. it ex- it's out there okay we've recorded almost 100 episodes we've been drinking Mostly drunk. for all of them so yeah <laughs> we've probably gone through a lot of things that no longer exist in my memory mm-hmm. okay here's another fucked up one thrill me the leopold and loeb story lisa loeb <laughs> No, do you remember Leopold and Loeb? No. Mm, kind of? Amanda, this was your case. <laughs> okay, so it was well, two... It was, I th- mine was the musical Parade, wasn't it? No, when I, the episode where we talked about Leopold and Loeb, it was your case. Oh, okay, I'm like, that's not the case I covered today. I'm confused. No, no, honey. Then sure, I totally remember. <laughs> do Do go on. <laughs> It was two guys like in their tw- like twenties ish, I think, and they um, they had like a pseudo sexual relationship. Well, like they had a sexual relationship, but only w- they think that only one of them was actually romantically attracted to the other, and then the other one was just using that relationship as leverage to get him to help him commit murders and other crimes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So Bringing they kept- a big bell. They really wanted to um, commit the perfect murder, so they, like, planned it all out, and they ended up killing a a young boy named Bobby Franks. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, yep, okay. I remember that. It's jogging my memory now. The thrill killers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. And this happened in 1924. And they made a musical out of that? That's Sure did. Yeah, so some of these There's a lot of fucked up adaptations out there Mm -hmm. this one might be the worst well we'll see charles manson summer of hate the (laughs) musical (laughs) incredible 
Ugh. Oh no, oh no. Whatever you're thinking right now is worse than what it actually is. It is described as a musical trip between L.A. and Death Valley. <laughs> and it's named after one of Manson's own records because turns out he was an aspiring musician and also friends with um, Neil Young and the Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson. Like yep. in real life, Manson was friends with them. Yeah, they were like BFFs for a while. Yeah. There's a really what's that podcast that covers all the? Is it Hollywood and Hollywood crimes or Holly, whatever? It's really good. Yeah, I don't. Know. I don't know. One of our episodes? No, no, no. There's a podcast out there oh. that covers like Hollywood crimes specifically, and they did a whole series on the Manson murders. That's like really well done. Way yeah, better than like our shit. Connected. Oh, there are so many better podcasts out there. I don't know what you people are doing listening <laughs> to us right now. <laughs> <laughs> you are the worst. Don't say that. <laughs> so the play is about his failed attempts to start a music career, basically. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's not about Classic. the Tate murders necessarily, but the okay. title would have you think otherwise. Yeah, sure. that's really misleading. Yeah. Well, Summer of Hate was the title of one of his albums that he wrote. Summer of Tate. Oh, Jesus. Gross. Okay. okay. Whatever. Um, okay. I'm brilliant. So here is another musical which had me way confused about Kenyon's um, pre-roll thing <laughs> that we did that earlier. Was, that was a different episode. That was episode 97. Okay. Well, we then maybe to cut that out. Okay. Um, the next one is Assassins which is a 1990 musical about the various men and women who have tried either successfully or unsuccessfully to assassinate presidents of the United States. And turns out this play was actually super successful. Like, it played oh all God. around the world. I love it. Yeah. Um, so We have so many musicals to watch over my Christmas break. Yes. <laughs> Kenyon's like, thank God I will be, be in Madagascar. I'll be I'm literally the sound as of music far 17 removed times. as I can possibly be. <laughs> <laughs> From this nightmare. So Assassins features 11 assassins or would-be assassins, including John Wilkes Booth and his accomplice, David Harold. I guess I was unaware that he had an accomplice, but he had like a couple of accomplices. Also unaware of that. Interesting. Um, Charles Guiteau, who was James Garfield's assassin, who knew. It's so fucked up what we learn in history class and what we do not. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of this man. I didn't even nope. know that James Garfield was assassinated. Nope. Me neither. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Durr. We do know that one. Mm-hmm. So fucked up. And Amanda's favorite, Squeaky Frome. Yes. I love Squeaky. Making yet another appearance on this show. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's like every other episode we mention her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've got one. <laughs> this doesn't exactly fit the category, but I could not not mention it. It is a musical called Holler If You Hear Me, mm-hmm. which is a musical mm-hmm. based on Tupac Shakur's lyrics. Oh. Incredible. <laughs> what? It, op- Here it, for it, it opened in 2004 on Broadway, and it did not do well. Oh, no. <laughs> a, a New York Post article by Michael Riedel, Riedel, Riedel said, quote, The show, henceforth to be known as Holler If Anyone Buys a Ticket. <laughs> oh, come on, Michael. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. Michael. Took in a measly $170,000 last week, making it the lowest-grossing show on Broadway. 
The plot line of this play isn't even about Tupac, and it isn't a true story. So, again, it doesn't really belong in this lineup, but I thought it was funny, so there you go. It probably would have been fine if it actually was about Tupac. I mean, that's a story to tell. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Who plays Aaliyah? if you got a better idea. (laughs) I don't think it's still playing, but, you know, it was probably a valiant effort. We'll never know. There's also Titanic the musical. <laughs> so not really a I crime, would but everybody leaves at intermission. <laughs> <laughs> we all know how it ends. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> god okay, Jeez. calm down. You're incredible. Oh my god. So some could argue that the sound of music was based on a crime. Yeah. <laughs> Genocide. You know. Genocide. Yeah. yeah. Is considered a crime. It's not yeah. really based on it. It's just sort of like the background. <laughs> There's just genocide loosely it's in the background. In the, background. the haunting yeah. specter of genocide. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Great soundtrack uh, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so great. And lastly, we've oh, got wait, that reminds, wait, wait, that reminds me. Oh, when I told Zach the topic of this episode, he goes, what are you going to do, Fiddler on the Roof? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just, yeah, oh, just listing God. pogroms. Sure could have. Yeah. Why didn't we? Whatever. Could have. There you go. There's another one. Haunting la- Specter of Genocide. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> And last but not least, we have Cannibal the Musical. Yes. <laughs> Which was a 1993 independent film by Trey Parker and Matt Stone. This was before South Park. So it's good. like those guys. So you can Amazing. imagine it's like hilarious, probably. I don't know. Um, it's about the Donner Party. So. <laughs> okay, I'm yeah. going to need to see that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's just freely available on YouTube. I didn't look, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that is a freaking musical awesome. about the Donner Party. I'm I'm down here for it. We've also been invited. It didn't work out with our schedules, um, but we've been invited to a musical play about Lizzie Borden in L.A., yeah. which mm-hmm. I think is still ongoing. So get your tickets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. There are true crime musicals abound right now. Like mm-hmm. this is yeah. our time. Mm-hmm. So that's all I've got for you because I didn't really know I love what to do it. with it. But. Love it. Perfect. Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. All you need is a computer with internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. Who hasn't? Yeah, seriously. And getting something off your chest whenever you need to is so important. It's not just about like sitting on a couch and venting your innermost Freudian problems. <laughs> you also have to talk about everyday challenges at work, at home, in your personal life, among your friends. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in our day to day lives. You just got to chat about life. There are no extra commutes with talk space, there's no leaving the office, there's no putting on a bra, there are no judgments. <laughs> 
It could not be easier. I have been using it for over a year now. It has absolutely improved my life in ways that I never imagined possible. And it's been really interesting to see sort of the evolution of this online therapy because we are really busy and people have families and people have people. I mean, in this country, people work like 80 hours a week. I mean, when do you have time to go to the therapist? I know I don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So having that app in my pocket whenever I encounter something challenging and can just bounce ideas off of my therapist has been a complete game changer. I can't recommend it highly enough. And for a lot of people, the act of going to your therapist's office causes a lot of anxiety, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Talkspace is awesome. And the Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges that we all face. Yep. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the traditional price of therapy, go to Talkspace.com mm-hmm. forward slash gals and use the promo code gals, that's G-A-L-S, to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. So again, that's gals, Talkspace.com forward slash gals, use promo code gals, 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 45 bucks off gals, gals, your gals. first month, gals, treat your gals. Treat your brain on the gals. <laughs> So today's show is sponsored by Knipe, the plant-based solution to self-care. Everyone needs Love self-care. It. For real. Ugh, especially self-care that smells this good, if we're being yeah, honest. Yeah, seriously. Knipe has been nature's expert for 125 years, so you know it's good. Almost as old as my grandmother. <laughs> she's the founder of the company. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she's not. She's no, not. she's not. They've created plant-based vegan bath and body products, which, again, smell incredible. They really do. You can try Knipe's best-selling mineral bath salts or Mm -hmm. bath oils and their award-winning Arnica collection, which can help revitalize and relax your body after working out, if that's your thing. Yeah, or just revitalize and relax your body, period. After a Netflix binge. (laughs) Yeah, I have used the Arnica joint and muscle bath salts after just being alive for a day. (laughs) It's Um, hard. It's rough out there. You know, it is hard to be alive. Also, just like I'm a big bath person, so I really, really love these products. And there are a lot of ways that your body can manifest stress. It's not just from working out, but like for me, I had finals last week and just the anxiety and like crouching at a desk over a test and like having all that tightness in your shoulders and in your neck and then getting home and taking a nice hot bath using these like literal muscle bath salts that are meant to relax your muscles and joints was such a therapeutic experience. Another product that I know that all three of us really loved that Knipe offers is their foot Foot butter. And Minnesota winters are really harsh on your feet, y'all. Like, it's dry and your heels crack. And I like to put this butter on my feet before bed and then put my feet in socks, Mm. which I know I'm typically very much against socks. But for this, I will wear socks. It's luxurious. All of their things are luxurious. I'm like... Yeah, you could literally make a little spa in your home Mm -hmm. with these products. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And you can get 15% off your first order by going to knipe.com. That's K-N-E-I-P-P.com and using promo code GALS. Again, that's for 15% off your first order. Go to knipe, K-N-E-I-P-P.com and use promo code GALS. Treat your bod. Treat it. You will... You will not regret Mm -mm. it. This stuff is amazing. I would like to begin my segment 
as I always do, with a long exposition on the historical significance and definition of mince pies. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I going to say meat. this shit gets real dark, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> mince meat developed 500 years ago as an alternative way of preserving meat. Uh, other than salting and smoking. <laughs> For God's sake. Other than salting and smoking? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. The filling comes from the medieval tradition of spiced meat dishes, usually minced mutton, which is also known appetizingly as shred pie. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ass turd. And I, oh, I, don't, yes. I don't know how the meat is preserved. It's just like covered in a lot of spices. Works yeah, for this me. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know how it's preserved, but that's all it is. I love it's... your lengthy explanation of mince pie. Oh, there's more. Don't worry. That's not the end of the explanation. Oh, I know, okay. but, like, we're unclear on the very basics, but it's fine. Uh, on the science of it, there's no way to know. Um, yeah, that's true. French traveler Henri Mission de Valbourg wrote in his 1698 memoirs, Blessed be he that invented pudding, for it is, <laughs> ma- <laughs> for it is <laughs> manna that hits the palates of all sorts of people. It is a great nostrum, the composition of this pastry. It is a most learned mixture of neat's tongues, chicken eggs, sugar, raisins, lemon, and orange peel, various kinds of spicery, etc. The Mm. fuck kind of pudding is this guy eating? God damn it. Sorry. What's going on? My phone is on silent, but it's lately been doing this thing where... Like, it all the time will just interject and think that I'm, like, asking it for something. Mm-hmm. So it's just always listening to me. Okay, whatever. <clears throat> Give me time to get my markers out. All right. Neat's tongues, meaning, of course, salted and dried calves' tongues, which oh, are <laughs> so really neat. For any dessert. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Mixing old meat and sugary fruits having fallen out of favor. Good God. (laughs) What a nightmare medieval England was. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Mince pies sans meat and made instead with minced and spiced fruit only. Um, have since become a British treat popular around the holidays, and I recently no. bought some. No thanks. Yeah. Um, they're, no, they're very good. popular here as well, I guess anywhere in the Commonwealth. So yeah, just like some sticky fruit that you're reminded isn't meat but used to be. That's <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. good. Yeah, happy holidays. Yeah, I'm so hungry. It's like fruitcake. So, do we see where I'm going with all of this? No. I think we do. Okay. I do. I've seen this musical. Oh, I forgot what we were talking about. (laughs) Yeah, come on. I super know where you're going. I 
do not have a clue where you're going with it. <laughs> I'm stuck on the meat-fruit combo. Mm-hmm. It's real bad. All right. Motherfucking Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Mm-hmm. Yep, and yep, we've all yep. seen that episode of The Office, so we all know I that feel song. You, Joanna, <laughs> I feel you. More theaters need to do guerrilla marketing like that. I agree. <laughs> Wasting okay. your time with traditional advertisements. I vaguely remember that episode of The Office. I also vaguely remember the. Um, Tim Burton movie version. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. Of Sweeney Todd, but I don't remember it all that well, and I didn't want to rewatch it because Johnny Depp is a fucking domestic abuser. There is that. Yeah, so, there's that. Here's the plot according to Wikipedia. <laughs> In uh, 18th century London, a barber named Benjamin Barker, played by Johnny Piece of Shit Depp, Mm-hmm. is married to the gorgeous Lucy, played by I Forgot to Look It Up. And they have a lovely child, Joanna Ditto. Lucy's beauty <laughs> and love of forensics. No, that's <laughs> just cats. our Lucy. Love of cats and forensics. Attracts the lust of the evil Judge Turpin, played by Alan Rickman. God bless. Judge Judy? Mm. I know, I miss him. Who, in order to get Lucy all to himself, falsely accuses the barber of a crime that he did not commit and gets him transported to Australia. Oh, no. And Australia was pretty wild at the time. Um, After 15 years in exile, Barker returns to London under a new identity of Sweeney Todd and seeking revenge against the judge. He meets the widow, Mrs. Lovett, played by Helena Bonham Carter, fucking of course, the (laughs) owner of a meat pie shop. Yes. She tells him that after being abused by Turpin for years, the lovely Lucy swallowed arsenic. No. Upon hearing, yes. Upon hearing this news and assuming Lucy dead, Barker opens a barbershop above Mrs. Lovett's store and with a straight razor slits the throats of those who made him suffer before pulling a lever, shuttling the bodies from his barber chair down a trap door to the cellar below where they will be turned into meat pies by the obliging Mrs. Lovett. So she was in on it? Yeah. Totally. She basically, in the play, basically, she, like, has this meat pie shop, but all her meat is, like, really gross, and her pies are really gross, and they're not selling well, and dead human flesh is at least fresh, and so then her Mm. pie starts selling better. Oh. I'd try it. We all know I'd try it. Um, But... Barker will not be satisfied until he slits the evil Judge Turpin's throat. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're welcome. So it's basically like a more morbid and cannibalistic version of The Count of Monte Cristo, and I appreciate that. It's like that combined with the H.H. Um, H. Holmes with like the yeah. trap door. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. They're like tunnels and stuff. It's great. So... The story of Sweeney Todd sprung out of Victorian penny dreadfuls, 
which were yeah. uh, cheap, sensational stories published in serialized magazines. So you'd like get one and read, and then it's like TBD, like got to get the next one to finish the story. Um, which focused on themes of gore and violence, featured criminals, detectives, and even the supernatural, like stories about vampires. Mm, oh, I'm into it. Hello. Yeah. So basically true crime and paranormal have always been super popular, and we are just riding the most recent wave, but it's always existed. Um. <clears throat> In these Penny Dreadfuls, there were numerous references to dubious meat pie fillings on sale. (laughs) So he was super unoriginal is what you're saying. Yeah, basically. There are so many instances of this popping up in Victorian pop culture. Um, In Charles Dickens's Pickwick Papers, published in 1836 and 37, a servant says that a pie man used cats for oh honey I know for beefsteak veal and kidney according to the demand I can't do British <laughs> sorry God. Can't, can't do British and recommends that people should buy pies only when you know the lady has made it and is quite sure it ain't kitten <laughs> oh stop. <laughs> And the whole cat I hate this. The whole cats thing comes up in the Sweeney Todd musical too, where oh the Mrs. Lovett is talking about the pie lady next door and how like her pies are better, but all the neighborhood cats are missing. <laughs> <laughs> so so gross. <laughs> The villain, Sweeney Todd, made his literary debut in a penny dreadful called The String of Pearls, which is by an unknown author, but people think it was either James Malcolm Reimer or Thomas Peckett pressed. I'd like to think it was by a woman. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In the same work, another character <laughs> references being grateful that his own, quote, evil genius did not lead him into the dens of any of those preparers of cannibalic pastry who are represented Ooh. in many country legends as doing a lively retail business in the metropolis. Cannibalic. Mm. Mm. Cannibalic pastry. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, My first boy. You're saying that. <laughs> Damien Faye, Calabonic pastry. Cannibalic pastry. <laughs> Lucy's child will become a cannibalic pastry chef. 100%. Um, just the fact that Sweeney Todd's character is a barber alludes to the common early 18th century trade of surgeon barbers. Ooh, mm-hmm. And like cool. surgeon dentists and stuff. Exactly, Doctor Phil. Exactly, Doctor Phil. Exactly, Sweeney Ted. Um, they were illiterate, untrained medical practitioners. <laughs> Who, oh my god who would give you a literally me <laughs> who would give you a nice shave and a trim pull the odd in two bits <laughs> pull Sorry. the odd infected tooth oh. and also do a little healthy bloodletting <laughs> all right 
And this is actually where the red and white barbershop pole comes from, yeah. which is still in use today. It's like the blood and um, the bandages. Exactly, mm-hmm. Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. <laughs> the red is the flowing blood from the barber's bloodletting. And the white <laughs> and the white is the bandages used to stop the bleeding. Oh my Great. god. Yeah. Cheerful. Gives a whole new meaning to barbershop quartets. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot about this at Chicago's museum, uh, Surgical History Museum. Nice. Which is one Ooh, of my favorite places on the planet. Highly recommend. They have a when great When we go back job. to Chicago, we need to, like, actually plan some time to sightsee because we did not do that at all last time. I know. And that would be really so fun. so sad. Okay. Mm. Farther afield, there were other references in pop culture to murderous barbers. In an 1892 poem entitled The Man from Ironbark by Australian bush poet Banjo Peterson. Excuse me, Patterson. Kazooie. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> His name is Banjo. Aw. I lived with a cat it. named Banjo. Oh, yeah. Okay. He got worms and died behind the washing machine. <laughs> Honey. Oh, they my God. They turned him into pie. Yeah. Made a okay. great pie. Um, <laughs> so this poem references an urban legend of a murderous barber who I think targeted an aboriginal man. Not great. Okay. It was oh. Australia in 1892. Oh. Not, great. Mm. Not great. Quote, this is the end of the poem. He tells the story o'er and o'er and brags of his escape. Them barber chaps what keeps a tote. By George, I've had enough. One tried to cut my bloomin' throat, but thank the Lord, it's tough. And whether he's believed or no, there's one thing to remark. That flowing beards are all the go way up in iron bark. <laughs> so, like so bad. Okay. Yeah. So this barber tried to slit his throat. And now everybody in his neighborhood just has really long beards because they're not going to <laughs> fuck with any fucking barbers. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. Okay. Back to Sweeney Todd. So the story String of Pearls with Sweeney Todd in it is an instant hit. And it inspired numerous offshoot plays. And these were written even before, like, the end of the serialized magazine story was even finished in 1847. So it was just like, everyone fucking loved this story. It was later adapted into a book by Hugh Wheeler, then a play by Christopher Bond in 1973, and finally in 1979, a Broadway musical by Stephen Sondheim. Heard of him? Have. (laughs) Ever heard of him? (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, some claim that the story was actually based on real life. Yup. So here are some theories, some possibilities of who it could be based on. Also, I'm pouring more wine. Of course you are. Check your glass for beetles. I'm pouring more beetles. I am. (laughs) Pouring beetles as we speak. All right. In 1784, the London Chronicle wrote about, quote, a most remarkable murder perpetrated by a journeyman barber near Hyde Park Corner. Okay. A journeyman barber. A journeyman barber. In 1818, tabloid writer James Catnatch. Catnap. 
<laughs> <I know. laughs> Word association. <laughs> wrote that human remains had been found in the sausages served at a Drury Lane pork butcher's shop. <laughs> Always. <laughs> like a fingernail? At least it was pork. Oh. No, like full-on human. Yeah, yeah I know, like, but uh, if it's like ground-up meat, there's only so much you could find. You know, if it's seasoned right, okay. I'm here for it. Right. Know. Who, knows, who knows how he suspected, but he suspected... <laughs> and these claims uh, drove the poor butcher out of business, but then the butcher sued him for libel, and the court found the printer catnip guilty and sentenced him to six months in prison. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's believed that Joseph Fouché, who served as minister of police in Paris under Napoleon, had archived records investigating murders committed by a Parisian barber who was in league with a, quote, neighboring pastry cook who made pies out of the victims and sold them for human consumption. I mean, oh, that's, okay. that's the story of Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Um, but these records were supposedly destroyed in the chaotic post-Napoleonic period, so we don't have those records anymore. But... Sadly... Said devastatingly. Um, so devastating. <laughs> the tale was republished in London in 1824 under the headline A Terrific Story of the Rue de la Harpe in Paris. The French origins okay. of this tale go back even further, however. A French folktale dating back to 1387. Damn. Known as L'Affaire de la Rue des Marmousets or La Légende du Barbier du Pâtissier Sanguinaire, which Shut means the, the legend of the barber <laughs> and the bloody pastry seller, is shockingly familiar. I think we need to go back to our rule of you butchering French words. I yeah, yep. <laughs> I can I'm do done. it. L'Affaire de la Rue des Marmousets. Love it. La legend du barbier a du patissier sanguinaires. <laughs> that was actually better than some of the French that I've heard from people. So at least Fair. it was understandable. Okay. Sanguinaires. Sanguinaires. <laughs> Towards the end of the 14th century, there lived a sort of demon barber who slit his client's throat at 24 Rue des Marmosettes. There we go. Oh, God. He carried on this horrible <laughs> trade, and no one could resist him. In his cellar, he polished them off. His accomplice, a villainous pie merchant next door. <laughs> All right. So it goes back to the fucking 12th century. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's not right. 13th, 14th century. 14th. <laughs> I can do math. Oh. All right. <laughs> and most well-known of all, controversial author and historian Peter Haining wrote two books claiming to have found evidence of a real historical figure who committed crimes Sweeney Todd style around the turn of the 19th century, was tried in December 1801, and was subsequently hanged in January 1802. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. So all of this is this guy Haining's uh, theory which cannot be corroborated. But it sounds pretty great, so let's cover it. Yeah. 
Haining, I love this. Haining claimed, <laughs> quote, Sweeney Todd was born on October 26th, 1756, in Brick Lane. The house in which the child first breathed the fetid air of the East London slums <laughs> is not known. <laughs> Romantic. Say that sentence one more time. I need to light a candle and sip some wine. The house house in which the child first breathed the fetid air of the East London slums is not known. But it was probably near Spitalfields. All they needed to say was we don't know the birthplace. Yeah, we don't know his fucking address where he was born, but moving on. He first breathed the fetid air. (laughs) His troubled, violent early life mirrors that of more recent killers. Todd's mother, not 20, scratched (laughs) scratched a living winding... (laughs) No, not 20. Scratched a living winding silk... Her husband, a struggling silk weaver, was a drunk who beat his son and his wife. Natch. Cat Natch. Um, (laughs) Todd loathed his, quote, gin-sodden parents. (laughs) Another epitaph. (laughs) Gin-sodden? Yeah, I love it. That is me. And in the winter of sixteen, or, uh, in the winter of seventeen sixty-eight, <laughs> they disappeared, either dying in the streets or Good simply God. abandoning their child. Okay. One or the other. Somehow the boy survived that rough winter and became an apprentice cutler, his master being John Crook of Holborn, who specialized in razors. <laughs> um, that's not suspicious. <laughs> Don't give a sad orphan a bunch of razors. <laughs> no. Don't give any orphan a bunch of ra- anyone. Right? I mean- Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, but I bet razors were more of, like, a trade back then. They'd be hard to make, a razor. It would be hard to make. Anyway, uh, apprentice life was not to be. um, And uh, at 14, Sweeney Todd was jailed for petty theft. Mm-hmm. And in prison, he took to, quote, soaping condemned men's chins for shaving before they walked the gallows. Oh. That's oh. morbid as fuck. Wait, is this the I plot line that. for the play? No. It's not. No. This is, none of this is in Sweeney Todd the play. This is all this one historian slash author claiming that he found all this information and then nobody else being able to corroborate it. But his name mm. was actually Sweeney Todd. That's what this guy claims. I don't know. This is the tale of Sweeney Todd. I mean, it makes for a pretty great story, but it might be completely made up. But let's Who go cares? with it. It's real. I'm into it. I am into Sorry. it. Okay. So at 19, he was released from prison and became a barber. But he had a grudge against the world, and he was violent and brawling. And he treated his mm. common-law wife abominably. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh no. my. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh heavens no. <laughs> In 
1784, something pushed him over the edge, and Haining claims that a news chronicle from the period attested, <clears throat> a young gentleman, by chance coming into the barber's shop to be shaved and dressed, and being in liquor, mentioned having... Being seen... in liquor? Yeah. <laughs> Just in a tub of it. <laughs> mentioned a sock. having seen a fine girl in Hamilton Street for whom he had certain favors of the night. Ew. The like barber... Concluding this to be his wife, and in the height of his frenzy, cut the young gentleman's throat from ear to ear. Mm. He then got a taste for drawing blood, not just bloodletting. And he began to kill prosperous-looking customers in order to rob them. But disposed of the bodies, disposing of the bodies became a problem. Enter yeah. his neighbor, Mrs. Lovett. Uh oh! I love it. <laughs> I fucking love it. <laughs> so there are all these rumors that there are like real tunnels between where this barber shop allegedly was to this pie shop nearby, and whatever. I don't know if any of this is real. I'm just evoking the rule that all rumors are real. Yep. <laughs> the yep. rule. <laughs> this is a rule now. It's a rule. It's, it's all real. It's real enough. Um, yep. Where there's smoke, it's definitely fire. Um, so. There's definitely human meat pies being <laughs> baked. <laughs> where there's smoke, there's meat pies. <laughs> so according to Peter Haining, it was the smell of rotting flesh from St. Dunstan's. That was like the area where the barbershop was. That was the undoing of Todd. Quote. Yeah, that'll give it away. <laughs> the <laughs> dreadful Shawnel House sort of smell would make itself most painfully and disagreeably apparent. This and rumors about seafaring men disappearing from Todd's shop attracted the attention of Sir, Rich Sir Richard Blunt, Police Magistrate of the Bow Street Runners Craven Street Office, which okay. is the most British, British name for an office twer ever was. I'm super here for <laughs> Sir Richard Blunt. Yeah. Sir Dick Blunt. Dick Blunt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about a blunt dick. <laughs> Been there, done that. Oh, yeah. Not great. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. Where the tip is like weirdly <laughs> flat. And you're like, how'd that happen? Did you run into a glass door? Did you door? fall? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Did my you God. fall? <laughs> <laughs> okay. How often so do you, you rode bike? horses as a child, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just ground it down. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So this author slash historian who claimed all that shit, he passed away in 2007 and other historians looked into his claims and they were unable to find any supporting evidence. But that's okay because <laughs> it's a great fucking story and I love it. I'm going to buy rumors are true. all his books. <laughs> I um, love it. 
So there are no records of a person named Sweeney Todd in any court documents, birth or death certificates. God damn it. Such a bubble burster. <laughs> there are also no records of the other characters like Marjorie Lovett or Tobias Rag, her like street or urchin that she mm-hmm. <laughs> street urchin. That she, urchin. <laughs> that she, You're crushing it. <laughs> that she took under her wang. Quit choking on beetles and her get back wang. to the story. Her wang. Um, her last name was Rag. Well, okay, so good thing you brought that up because people point out that all the names in this story are like super Dickensian names. Yeah, yeah so it's I just slap so hard I hit my teeth on the mic again. <laughs> Every episode. <laughs> Every episode. <laughs> okay, there's also no record of a barbershop located on Fleet Street from the time period. There or anywhere in England. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bit of a stretch. Um, there are newspaper reports published primarily in the Old Bailey section of the London Times. However, uh, quote: Victorian newspapers often reported gruesome hearsay as if it were fact. Padding yes. out the pages and also the podcast with <laughs> embellished scandals and outright lies. <laughs> Check. So um, there's no barbershop on Fleet Street, but did they check Peniston? <laughs> or to till. Or the licky end. Till. Okay. Um, tellingly, there are no actual trial or execution documents to speak of to back up all the rumors. So we may never know if there really was a murderous barber and cannibalistic meat pie saleswoman in pre Victorian London. But <laughs> one can hope. Wow. The demon barber of Peniston. <laughs> Street. The demon barber of Toot Hill. Oh my Doesn't God, Toot Hill! I will die on Toot Hill. Have enough Ooh. meat pies, and you will die on Toot Hill. I. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Hashtag ghouls. I do hear cats give you gas. <laughs> Hash cats. <laughs> okay. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care Of has this really fun online quiz that asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. It only takes about five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. That was awesome for me because I am vitamin illiterate. Like I was eating gummies and like Flintstone vitamins before I found (laughs) Care Of. It's crazy. And then your vitamins get delivered right to your door in personalized, easy to remember daily packs. They're perfect for a busy on the go lifestyle. I just keep mine in the medicine cabinet above my bathroom sink. Because when I open that cupboard to like brush my teeth, there are my vitamins just reminding me like, oh, grab a pack. And they have these cute little like daily, you know, intention, like motivational quotes on them. They're super Yeah, cute. little daily suggestions. I love their packaging. Yeah. They also offer vegan and vegetarian supplement options that are available to match your dietary needs. And if pills, like, aren't your favorite thing in the world, you can add on their nutrient-packed quick stick powders. You just pop that in your drink, get a little boost whenever you need it. Love it. Love it. I um, I keep mine above the sink in my kitchen, and everyone's... Mm. I have actually two or three friends who always ask me about them. They've since subscribed using our promo code, NATCH. 
but they love it. They're super into vitamins. Again, the packaging is beautiful. Love their little quotes. Love how just easy they make it. You don't mm-hmm. have to think about like, hmm, what are my zinc levels today? Because they know. Yeah, seriously. Because of the quiz. And I'm always stressing about my zinc levels. I know. It's, they, they, it haunts my dreams. Yep. So for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code GALS. That's G-A-L-S. So again, 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code GALS, G-A-L-S. Treat your zinc levels. Love it. <laughs> With the year wrapping up, it is time to put a bow on 2018 and think about some new outfits. New outfits, new you. Love it. Whether you're still craving cozy sweaters, yes, or you're ready to start stocking up for spring, yes, yes. mod cloth is your (laughs) go-to. You can transition from layered looks to looks that you can wear as the weather warms up. Hello, leggings. Yes. Yes. And if you're jonesing for a getaway, they've got a collection of amazing swimwear suited just for you. Woo. <laughs> uh, uh, Get it. Uh, uh, clever. So what are you waiting for? Hit the site, discover something uniquely you, and you can start the new year with a clean slate and a fresh wardrobe. Hello, your closet is ready yep. for pieces that are easy to transition from winter to spring. Again, the leggings. Mm-hmm. Get that swimsuit in mm-hmm. there. Get your mind right. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and ModCloth believes fashion should celebrate all bodies. That's why they offer a full range of sizes from double extra small to 4X. I love that. And if you have a question about fit, their team of mod stylists can hook you up with complimentary sizing and styling help. Another thing that I love is that after you purchase something on ModCloth and you receive it very quickly, by the way, you can upload photos of yourself to the ModCloth site in almost like a comment section relating oh. to that particular item. So you can see what these pieces look like on folks who look a lot like it's you. So and I really, really love that. Yeah. I've been using ModCloth for a long time now. Their catalog is amazing. It comes every couple months to my mailbox, and I'm always just drooling whenever I get it. Um, but it's awesome because you really can find something for any occasion. I've gotten multiple bridesmaid dresses on there, including for Lucy's mm-hmm. wedding. Um, their bathing suit fits are awesome. One thing I really do love is that they do a bunch of high-waisted uh, bikinis. So uh, you can mix and match. Like, I am a Frankenstein's monster of a body. So my bottom half is explosively large. <laughs> I am a But Picasso. I have a little bitty waist. Yeah, I am a Picasso. A uh, little bitty waist and some mediocre boobs. So I can mix and match those bathing suits until I find something that is going to fit me absolutely perfectly and that I can feel confident in. I just, I love my cloth. I can't, I mean, huge endorsement. Mm-hmm. Huge. 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 So to get 15% off your purchase of $100 or more, go to modcloth.com and enter our promo code WINECRIME at checkout. So again, that is 15% off your purchase of $100 or more. And trust me, that will not be difficult. Love their clothes. Go to modcloth.com, M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H.com and enter the promo code WINECRIME. That's W-I-N-E-C-R-I-M-E at checkout. 15% 15% off Claude Yobod with Mod. Also, this mm. offer is valid for one-time use only and expires on March 3rd, 2019. So run, don't walk before. Yeah, that's right around the it corner, really y'all. Is. But it's also swimsuit season, so, you know, be wise. So again, this offer is valid for one-time use only and expires on March 3rd, 2019. Do it now. Get Yobod, Claude, in Mod. 
Yod. <laughs> Gym memberships, personal trainers, and nutritionists are very expensive. So let me tell you about Noom and how they can help you on your weight loss journey. This is not a lose weight fast plan. This is a lose weight for good plan. This is like the thinking person's diet. You learn along the way. You're not just dieting. It's not temporary. You're recognizing and changing habits that have been blocking your success. You're picking out workouts through this app that work for you, that um, honor the like time it takes for you to actually apply to working mm -hmm. out. They work within your lifestyle and they try to help you make long-term changes to meet your long-term goals and stick to those goals. And it is amazing. It's really incredible. And as you probably could have guessed from our podcast, I love psychology. I love learning about things and really understanding them from like you know, just learning all different aspects of it. So Noom has all these articles that explain weight loss and all of these different factors. It's very kind of holistic. It's incredible. I've learned a lot. I love it. And you don't have to be a celebrity to have your own support team, to have your own mm -hmm. glam squad. Mm -hmm. They've got a live goal specialist and they've got access to a group of fellow new members. So it's just really easy to chat with your goal specialists. They're a behavior change professional. They're a nutrition expert. They're a fitness trainer all in one. They can keep you on track. They can keep you accountable, answer all your questions. And this is all for less than the price of a single appointment with a nutritionist or personal trainer. Seriously. It's really, really cool. So what do you have to lose besides a few pounds? Yep. Sign up today and start so your trial at noom.com forward slash gals. So mm. again, you start your trial today, this moment. Why are you waiting? Why are you still listening? Go to noom. To well, 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 keep listening. <laughs> keep listening. But also while you're Multitask listening. Multitask and go to noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com slash gals, G-A-L-S, and start losing that weight for good. So one more time, noom.com forward slash gals. Start your trial and start seeing life-changing results today. Treat it. Treat your bod. Mm -hmm. All right. My case is long, so I'm going to try to power through this. All right. I'm really drunk. <laughs> Apparently, this inspired a musical that I've never seen and never heard of called Parade. <laughs> the magazine? <laughs> Parade magazine. And it's not nearly as fun. As the title might potentially suggest. completely fake, <laughs> yeah, Sweetie Todd or up an actual parade. Um, parade. This is a story mostly about Leo Frank, who was born on April 17th, 1884, in Cuero, Texas. Um, within Damn a few it. months, their family moved to Brooklyn, where Leo grew up. So Kenyon's Shout husband out. probably knows him personally. I'm from Brooklyn. He graduated from Cornell University, ever heard of it, in 1906, <laughs> earning, a, earning a degree in mechanical engineering. In December of 1907, Frank went to Europe for a spell, a nine-month spell. Was he pregnant? Working, work, no, working an apprenticeship <laughs> in a pencil manufacturing plant. Oh, fascinating. Oh. Yep. In August of 1908, he moved to Atlanta to assume the supervision of the National Pencil Factory. Which is definitely a real place and not made up. It's real, <laughs> I assume. 
Two years later. And everyone died of lead poisoning. Two years later, case closed. Bye. Special thanks. In November 1910, Frank married Lucille Selig of Atlanta, and the couple lived with Lucille's parents for a little while. But then in 1913, the Jewish community in in Atlanta became the largest in the South, and they joined this amazing community because they're Jewish. And Leo Frank was serving as president of the Atlanta chapter of, let's see if I can get this right, Benai Benai Brith. I I couldn't say it any better, so. Bless it. While also maintaining his position as supervisor of the National Pencil Factory. He had a lot going on. (laughs) Had a lot going for him. Really, really getting it. Mary (laughs) Fagan was born on June 1st, 1899. Oh, my God. Hold on. Face. Shut up. (laughs) I'm watching Corey's dog for him this afternoon. Um, Mary Fagan was born on June 1st, 1899, into an established Georgia family of tenant farmers. Established tenant farmers. farmers. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I think what that means is that she comes from a long line of tenant farmers. Okay. (laughs) Her father died, sadly, before she was born. Um, shortly after her birth, her mother, Frances Fagan, moved the family back to their hometown of Marietta, Georgia. Heard of it. Um, around, yeah, ever heard of it? No. <laughs> uh, around 1907, they relocated to East Point, Georgia, uh, which is like in southwest Atlanta, where Frances opened a boarding house, the mom. Mary left school at age 10 to work <laughs> part-time in a textile mill. This sounds like an episode of The Dollop. It pretty much is. But this little girl is rocking some child labor, 10 years old. She starts at a textile mill. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mother remarries in 1912, and the family moves to Atlanta, joins this amazing, uh, flourishing Jewish community. That same spring, at now 13 years old, Fagan, little Mary Fagan, takes a job with the National Pencil Company. Mm, 13? Where she earned... 10 cents an hour operating a knurling machine. <laughs> also real that and inserted, fake. <laughs> That inserted rubber erasers into the metal tips of pencils. So now you know that that uses a knurling machine. No. <laughs> knurling. She worked 55 hours a week <laughs> at 10 cents an hour. <laughs> oh, my God. God. No. <laughs> yep. And she worked on the What's second that? floor of Five the factory. Five bucks a week? Not, like, barely. She worked... On the second floor of the factory in the metal room in a section called the tipping department, which was across the hallway from Leo <laughs> Frank's office. Just the tip. Sadly, little 13-year-old Mary Fagan was laid off <laughs> on April 21st of 1913. <laughs> due to a shortage of brass sheet metal. Mm. Yeah, this girl's <laughs> lost two jobs before the age of 14. <laughs> She's... Around noon on April 26th, she went to the factory to claim her pay of $1.20. The next day, shortly before 3 a.m., the factory's night watchman, Newt Lee, went to the factory basement to use the toilet. After leaving the toilet, Lee discovered Fagan's body in the rear of the basement near an incinerator and called the police. Her dress was up around her waist, and a strip from her petticoat had been torn off and wrapped around her neck. Mm. No. Her face was blackened and scratched, and her head was bruised and battered. How does this relate to a parade? 
This parade sucks. <laughs> I know. Uh, I think I know how it relates to a parade uh, as someone who's never seen the musical but knows the case. And maybe we can link that toward the end. Okay. Her life was a parade of disappointments. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Um, a seven-foot wrapping cord was tied in a loop around her neck, digging like 6.4 millimeters into her neck, showing that she'd been strangled. Ugh. Yikes. Um, her underwear was still around her hips, but stained with blood and torn open. No. This is no. the early 1900s, so I don't... That's about as far as they really a thing. say, but yep. that's pretty telling. Yep. Her skin was covered with ashes and dirt from the floor, initially making it appear to... Uh, uh, initially making it appear, appear to responding officers, apparently I've also been drinking, <laughs> that she and her assailant had struggled in the basement. Mm. A service ramp at the rear of the basement led to a sliding door that opened into an alley. The police found the door had been tampered with so it could be opened without unlocking it. So it's like mm. the whole tape on the door trick. Oh. 1920s version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Later button examination found... Button on the door. <laughs> wooden button. Uh... <laughs> Later examination found bloody fingerprints on the door as well as a metal pipe that had been used as a crowbar. Some evidence at the crime scene was improperly handled, big shock, by police investigators. A trail in the dirt from the elevator shaft along which police believed Fagan had been dragged was completely trampled by police Mm. and footprints footprints couldn't be identified because there were so many. Two notes were found in a pile of rubbish by Fagan's head and became known as the, quote, murder notes. I have a photo on the drive of one of them. Creative. Uh, The spelling is not great. One said, quote, he said he would love me land down play like the night, which like the night witch did, but did it. But that long, tall, black Negro boy, his self. What the fuck? Yep, it does not make a lot of sense. And also, I don't like any of this terminology, but I am reading a quote, and it is from 1913. Not that that's an excuse. I'm just covering my bases. Right. Wow. The other note said, Ma'am, that Negro hire down here did this. I went to make water, and he pushed me down that hole, a long, tall Negro, Negro black that who it was, long, slim, Oh, my God. Tall Negro, I write while play with me. All right, because she obviously had so much time while she was being strangled to leave not one but two well, racist notes. It was never it was never her who was suspected as leaving the notes. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, Newt Lee who was suspected as leave, leaving the notes. But it was supposed to be in her from her perspective, I don't think so. Right? Let's just keep going. Oh. Okay. So the phrase night witch was thought to mean night watch, like night watchman. When the notes were initially read, mm. al- read aloud, night watchman Newt Lee is reported by police to have said, boss, it looks like they are trying to lay it on me. So somebody is trying is writing these notes. It was never suspected to be the victim. It was suspected to be someone who wanted to look like Newt was the killer. Right. I also think Night Witch will be mm-hmm. my epitaph. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Lee was arrested that morning based on these notes and his apparent familiarity with the body. He stated that the girl was white was white when the police, because of the fifth, filth and darkness in the basement, initially thought she might have been black. Oh, no, don't worry. She's like, white. Take this seriously. Goddamn right. racism. Well, not even that. Right. Like, 
Well, obviously that. But I think what they're saying is they arrested him because it's like, how did you know she was white? We didn't. We couldn't even tell she was white uh, just by looking at her in the state he, that she was in. And he recognized her from being working at the factory? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, a trail leading back to the elevator suggested to police that the body had been moved by someone and they suspected that it was Lee. Mm. In addition to Newt Lee... Uh, The police arrested a friend of Mary Fagan for the crime. Gradually, the police became convinced that these were not the culprits. Uh, By the following Monday, the police had theorized that the murder occurred on the second floor, which is the same as Frank's office, Mm. the pencil manager, Mm. based on hair found on a lathe and what happened to be blood on the ground of the second floor. So they're like picking up some little potential evidence. Mm, So she could have been killed somewhere else or at least struggled somewhere else and then brought there. Yep. Mm. And brought down there. There's got to be blood all over a pencil factory, though. Mm -hmm. Shit's sharp. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but both Newt Lee, uh, wait, what? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. This is weirdly written. I got a lot of this off of Wikipedia. <laughs> both Newt Lee and, and after the, uh, both Newt Lee after the discovery of Mary Fagan's body and the police just after 4am had unsuccessfully tried to telephone Frank early on Sunday, apparently to like either let him know what was going on or ask him some questions. They both tried to call him and he didn't answer. Mm. The police contacted him later that morning, and he agreed to accompany them to the factory, take a peek around, maybe ask some questions. Mm. When the police arrived after 7 a.m. without telling the specifics of what happened at the factory, Frank seemed extremely nervous. So he was kind of nervous, even though he didn't apparently know why they were even there. Mm. Trembling, he's pale, his voice is hoarse, he's rubbing his hands and asking questions before the police could answer. He said he's not familiar with the name Mary Fagan, and we need to check his payroll book. Um, The detectives take Frank to the morgue to see Fagan's body and then to the factory where Frank viewed the crime scene and walked the police through the entire building. He returned back home around 10.45 a.m. And at this point, he was not considered a suspect. Well, they did a lot before 10.45 a.m. I know. I'm never up I barely have I wasn't even up that early today. 100%. On April 28th, Frank, accompanied by his attorney, Luther Rosser, gave a written deposition to the police that provided a brief timeline of his activities on Saturday. He said Fagan was in his office between 12.05 and 12.10 p.m., so stopped by for five minutes in the afternoon, that Newt Lee had arrived for work at 4 p.m., but was asked to come back later, and that Frank had a confrontation with ex-employee James Gunt at 6 p.m. as Frank was leaving and Lee was arriving again. Frank explained that Lee's time card for Sunday morning, yeah, James Gunt, uh, that Lee's time card for Sunday morning had several gaps. Lee was supposed to punch in every half hour for some inexplicable reason. I don't know why. That sounds horrible. Um, I know. And that Frank had missed these gaps when he discussed the time card with police that Sunday. At Rosser's insistence, his lawyer, he exposed his body to demonstrate that he had no cuts or injuries, and the police found no blood on the suit that Frank said he had worn on that Saturday that she yeah, was Yeah, Frank said he had the worn. P- exactly. The police found no blood stains on the laundry at Frank's house. Okay. Uh, so the next day, April 29th, Detective John Black went to Newt Lee's residence at 11 a.m. looking for evidence and found a blood-smeared shirt at the bottom of a burn barrel. Ooh. Not good. Not good. But the blood was smeared high up on the armpits and the shirt, quote, smelled unused. What? Cracked detective work. Suggesting to the police Um. that it was planted (laughs) and not actually the shirt that was, like, worn during this. How would somebody get access to a burn barrel at Newt Lee's house? 
I don't know. Mm. How did somebody? Well, it's probably outside. Yeah, that's true. Mm. It's a, if it's a burn barrel, it's not going to be indoors. Mm. But if it's a burn barrel, why wasn't the shirt fucking burned? I don't know. But again, they think the shirt was planted. The detectives, suspicious okay. of Frank due to his nervous behavior throughout the interviews, believed that Frank had arranged the plant. He would have Newt's uh, address because he's on payroll. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it is the early 1920s, so they don't need much evidence. And Frank was subsequently arrested around 1130 a.m. at the factory. The police were convinced that Lee was involved as Frank's accomplice and that Frank was trying to implicate him completely and get off the get off the hook. Mm -hmm. To bolster their case, the police started or staged a confrontation between Lee and Frank. This detective work is amazing. While both were still in custody. There were conflicting accounts of this meeting, but the police interpreted it as further implicating Frank. On Wednesday, so this is again the next day, the 30th, a coroner's inquest was held. Frank testified about his activities on Saturday, and other witnesses produced corroboration. Guess this didn't matter, really. A young man said that Mary Fagan had complained to him about Frank. Uh, several former employees also spoke of Frank flirting with other women. And One said children. she was actively, yeah, I know. One said that she was actively God. propositioned. The detectives admitted that, quote, they so far had obtained no conclusive evidence or clues in the baffling mystery. Still, Lee and Frank were both ordered to be detained. Okay. So, like, these people might not have been so great, but there really was not hard evidence implicating. At least Leo Frank for this crime. And then a parade mm-hmm. passing through town. We're, yeah. we're still going to get there. We're still going to become a musical. We're still going to get there. And maybe this is just totally the wrong case. Who knows? It's, you know, I've misunderstood the assignment before. But <laughs> I literally the Googled. The pencil, the pencil, the pencil. Yeah. I Googled the case that inspired the musical parade. And this was like tons of stuff about this came up. So that's what I assume is right. Okay. Um, okay. The, we'll the prosecution ahead. based much of its case on the testimony of a man named Jim, Con- Jim Conley. Um, this guy was the factory's janitor. He's believed by many historian- historians to be the actual murderer in this case. The police had arrested Conley on May 1st after he had been seen washing red stains out of a blue work shirt. Detectives examined it for blood, but determined that it was rust, as Conley had claimed, However, I'm like, how could you be super sure? Because it's like 1914, and what kind of comprehensive lab do you have and to determine and that? Blood They're probably like, eh, like, we've got who we think smell did the it. same sure and taste the same. Who's licking the shirt? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I would want to know what strategies they're using to determine that, but whatever. Lick well, everything. Well, you'd think rust was more like lick it all. More like powdery, because rust is a solid, yeah, and blood is a liquid. But it can get wet. And then cause stains. Yeah, it can. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just saying it's it's up in the air. Conley was still in custody, in police custody, two weeks later. They just hold on to you back in the mm-hmm. 20s. They're like, we're not ready to let you go. Nobody has rights. It's great. Mm-hmm. When he gave his first formal <laughs> statement, he said that on the day of the murder, he had been visiting saloons, shooting dice, and drinking. So, dude, definitely sounds like he could hang with us. Yeah, dude fucks. He was in liquor. Uh, dude fucks. <laughs> <laughs> His story was called into question when a witness told detectives that, again, we're going to have to use some bad terminology, and this is a quote, and I do not believe any in any of these terms. Uh, so his statement was called into question when detectives said that a witness said, quote, a black Negro dressed, dressed in dark blue clothing and a hat had been seen in the lobby of the factory on the day of the murder. 
So it had to have been him. Mm. They only have one yeah, black friend. Yeah, there's only one, yeah. Good Lord. Further investigation determined that Conley could could read and write. He's definitely which guilty. Actually in, well, in 1914, <laughs> for like a black person to be able to read and write, it would actually be kind of surprising. Right. Um, not now, obviously, but then. Wait, Conley was the was the black yes, man in the lobby? Jim Conley oh, is okay. the janitor who works at the pencil factory and who was seen gotcha. in the lobby. So the fact that they discovered he can read and write meant that there was a possibility that he could have written the murder notes and like the grammar and the spelling were not very good. So he had like a basic knowledge of reading and writing, but wasn't great at it. So they could have linked him to the notes. Right, but a lot of people were barely literate back then. That's very true. Um, but then on May 24th, he admitted he had written the notes, swearing mm. that Frank had called him into his office the day before the murder and told him to write them. After testing Conley again on his spelling, he spelled Night Watchman as Night Witch, mm. just like it was written in the notes, mm. and the police were convinced that he had written them. They were skeptical about the rest of his story, not only because it implied premeditation by Leo Frank, but also because it suggested that Frank had confessed to Conley and then involved him. Conley changes up his story again, admits that he lied about his Friday meeting with Frank, said that he had met Frank on the street on Saturday and was told to follow him into the factory. Frank told him to hide in a wardrobe to avoid being seen by two women who were visiting Frank in his office. He said Frank dictated the murder notes for him to write, gave him cigarettes, then told him to leave the factory. Hmm. Afterward, Conley said he went out drinking and saw a movie. Again, totally my homeboy. He said he did not learn of the murder until he went to work on Monday. Then his story changed again. Oh, no. After a four-hour interrogation on May 29th, his new affidavit said that Frank told him, quote, he had picked up a girl back there and let her fall and that her head hit against something. Conley said he and Frank took the body to the basement via the elevator, then returned to Frank's office where the murder notes were dictated. Conley then hid in the wardrobe after the two uh, women had returned to the office. Or when those women showed up, he said Frank gave him $200 but took it back saying, quote, let me have that and I will make it all right with you on Monday if I live and nothing happens. Mm. Con uh, Conley's affidavit concluded, the reason I have not told this before is I thought Mr. Frank would get out and help me out and I decided to tell the whole truth about this matter now. At trial, Conley changed his story concerning the $200. He said Frank decided to withhold the money until Conley had burned Fagan's body in the basement furnace. On February 24th, 1914, Conley was sentenced to a year in jail for being an accomplice after the fact to the murder of Mary Fagan. So, all right, dude changed his story a whole lot. Yep. Um, but also, it was the 19-teens, and he was mm -hmm. a... Under interrogation. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And literally a black man doing a white man's bidding. Right. Allegedly. In, in this yeah. version of events. Right. Yep. So, I mean, obviously it's possible that he didn't do it. I guess a lot of historians who have studied this case for a long time say that, like, the timeline and the evidence that's been acquired, it makes the most sense that it was him. Mm. But there's really no way for us to know. Yeah, I'm just um, confused because they all sound it's like It's very shitheads. fucking confusing. And it all and no one seems like they're really telling the truth mm -hmm. for whatever reason. 
Um, there was an absolute media frenzy surrounding this case and trial. The Atlanta Co- Constitution broke the story of the murder and was soon in competition with the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Georgian. Forty extra editions came out the day that that Fagan's murder was reported. The Atlanta Georgian published a doctored morgue photo <gasps> of Mary Fagan in which her head was shown spliced onto the body of another girl. Ew, why? I the don't fuck? fucking know. How gross is like, that? Like, maybe they... Well, they wanted to sell newspapers. That's sensational. Yeah, like, it is. like, they had a photo of a, of a girl child in the morgue, and then they added her head on top of it? I guess, yeah. That's what it sounds like. Ugh. Um, and the papers were offering a total of $1,800 in reward money, which in 1914 would have been a lot of bank, yeah. for information leading to the apprehension of the murderer. So everybody is speculating. Everybody is, like, super invested in this now, in this, in this area. And instead, Soon they after decide the murder, to hold a parade of we're getting there. suspects. <laughs> we're getting there. Oh, God. Soon after the murder, Still Atlanta's no mayor criticized the police for their steady release of information to the public, because there's obviously a leak, and it's, it's like actual real information about this case that's being released to the public through the fucking papers, mm. which is never good when you're trying to find who did it, because then people know too many details mm-hmm. out there and you can't corroborate these stories. Right. Uh, the governor, noting the reaction of the public to press sensationalism soon after Lee's and Frank's arrests, organized 10 militia companies Uh-oh. in case they were needed to repulse mob action against the prisoners. This is how crazy Jesus. it was getting. Coverage of the case in the local press continued nearly unabated throughout the investigation, trial, and subsequent appeal process. Newspaper reports throughout the period combined real evidence, unsubstantiated rumors, and journalistic speculation. So it was a fucking mess Just of information like that was this out there. Podcast. Love it. 100%. But we are not like a vetted journalistic <laughs> yeah, we're not publication. We, so do not pretend we can do whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. During the trial, the pro- well, there is a doctored morgue photo on the drive for you. <laughs> yeah. It's of Lucy. <laughs> Lucy's head During on the my trial, body because no one can tell us apart anyway. With my bag. With a wig. <laughs> During the trial, the prosecution alleged bribery and witness tampering attempts by the Frank legal team, which was outed as being, like, basically anti-Semitic bullshit because he's a wealthy Jewish man. Right. And they're like, oh, you're just bribing and tampering with, like, all this money that you have. And there's things circle back to that, too. Meanwhile, the defense requested a mistrial because it believed the jurors had been intimidated by the people inside and outside the courtroom. Yeah, there are literal mobs inside and outside the courtroom. But the motion was denied. Fearing for the safety of Frank and his lawyers in case of an acquittal, um, Judge Rowan and the defense agreed that neither Frank nor his defense attorneys would be present when the verdict was read. Mm. On August 25th, 1913, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict convicting Frank of the murder. The day after the guilty verdict was reached by the jury, Judge Rowan brought counsel into private chambers and sentenced Leo Frank to death by hanging with the date set to October 10th. The defense team issued a public protest alleging that public opinion unconsciously influenced the jury to the prejudice of Frank, which Mm -hmm. is totally legit. Mm -hmm. Um... This argument was carried forward throughout the appeal process, and appeals were denied at the state and federal level. So he did not. Dang! So really, the only thing against this guy was that he like was kind of lecherous and owned the factory. Yep. Yep. And like maybe was there 
and like was there the day that she died. But like other people were also like there's no forensic evidence that could link him to this. Mm. But the fact that there like might have been some blood and hair on the second floor, which happened to be the same floor as Leo Frank's office. Like it's just kind of So bullshit. it wasn't in his office. And we definitely don't know no. whose hair or whose blood because it's nineteen fucking fourteen. No, because it's nineteen fucking yeah, no one Or if it's blood. Right. It could have been, been rust. Rust. Right. It's a Apparently. factory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot of circumstantial evidence that like Newt Lee and this Jim Conley guy are like, oh, he he's making us do this. Mm. And he's trying to pin it on Newt through these notes that he's making Conley write. They're all just like pointing at Frank, but nobody wants to be implicated, but there's no real evidence against Frank. So it's all just kind of a he said, she said thing. Also, wasn't she killed on a Saturday? Isn't that the Sabbath? Yeah. I mean. It depends on if he was observant yeah. or not, but he... If he was observant, he definitely would not have been at work that day. Well, he was at work that day. Oh, okay. And, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he was at work that day. I don't, I don't know if he was. That, that, that would mean, I guess, he's not observing the Sabbath. That's, I mean, who knows? But, yeah. There, who cares? Um, but, but, or he was hard uh, up for money. Yeah. Well, know. no, he was wealthy. Oh. He was running that national pencil factory. Um, on April 22nd, 1915, an application for a commutation of Frank's death sentence was submitted to a three-person prison commission in Georgia. It was rejected on June 9th by a vote of two to one. Um, the one dissenter indicated that he felt it was wrong to execute a man, quote, on the testimony of an accomplice when the circumstances of the crime tend to fix the guilt upon the accomplice. Mm, which makes good sense point. Good point. The application then passed to then-Governor John Slayton. Slayton had been elected in 1912, and his term would end four days after Frank's scheduled execution, so they were, like, really pushing for him to, to commute this. Mm-hmm. In 1913, before Mary Fagan's murder, murder, Slayton agreed to merge his law firm, he was a lawyer, with that of Luther Rosser, who was Frank's lead attorney. Mm. So Slayton was not originally involved in the trial, but like after all of this came to light and after the commutate, he did commute this death sentence and changed it. Uh, People, popular Georgia politician and journalist Tom Watson, who will come up in a little bit, went after Slayton saying that his partnership with the Rosser law firm was a conflict of interest and that's why he ended the death penalty and changed it to a life sentence. I can totally see how this was adapted to a musical. Me too. It's, it's making theatrical. so much sense. This is a conflict yeah. of interest I, between law firms. The gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. <laughs> um, Slayton opened hearings on June 12th in addition to receiving presentations from both sides with new arguments and evidence. He visited the crime scene and reviewed over 10,000 pages of documents. Um, on the 21st of June in 1915, he released the order to commute Frank's murder conviction to life imprisonment. Slayton's legal rationale was that there was su- sufficient new evidence not available at the original trial to justify Frank's actions. He wrote, in the Frank case, three matters have developed since the trial which did not come before the jury. Uh, the Carter notes, the testimony of Becker, these are all things that I didn't include in here because this case is so fucking crazy detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, indicating the death notes were written in the basement and the testimony of someone named Dr. Harris. Uh, I'm going to skip a lot of this because I don't even... Yep. He gave a lot of good reasons to commute this sentence. The end. Um, So on June 21st, 1915, this commuted sentence provoked that journalist, politician, Tom Watson douchebag into advocating Leo Frank's lynching. 
Whoa! Hi, yep. Georgia. What the fuck? He wrote in the <laughs> Jeffersonian and Watson's Magazine, this self-serving turd, quote, this country has nothing to fear from its rural communities. Lynch law is a good sign. Uh-huh. It shows that a sense of justice lives among the people. Sure. Yep. A group of prominent men organized themselves into the, quote, Knights of Mary Fagan and openly planned to kidnap Frank from prison. I don't want any Knights from the South. Nope. 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 Not a good combo. Not interested. Don't need it. Thank you. Mm -mm. Next, Ariana Grande. (laughs) Thank you. Um, they consisted of 28 men with various skills, including an electrician to cut the prison wires, car mechanics who were keeping like getaway cars running. Um, who else? Uh, ba, ba, ba. How did I just lose my thing? Oh, uh, there was a locksmith, a telephone man, a medic, a hangman, and a preacher. Really rounding it out. Mm. <laughs> On the afternoon of August 16th... Native American, a police officer, yeah, a, a construction man. <laughs> um, on the afternoon of August 16th, eight cars uh, full of the lynch mob left Marietta separately for Milledgeville, which is where the prison was that he was being detained. They arrived... Village people Village Peopleville. <laughs> they arrived at the prison around 10 p.m. The electrician cut the telephone wires. Members of the group drained the gas from the prison's automobiles so they couldn't be chased. Oh, my God. They, Ooh, smart. Smart. Yeah. They handcuffed the warden, seized Frank, and drove away. Um, The total 175-mile trip took about seven hours at a top speed of 18 miles per hour. (laughs) (laughs) I love that detail. It's like if I tried to drive a getaway car. Oh, God. It's if Scott was driving. (laughs) Through small towns and on back roads. Lookouts in the towns along the way would telephone ahead to the next town as soon as they saw the line of cars pass by or the parade. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> this is where I feel like the link might be. I hate this. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then a site at uh, Frey's Gin, two miles east of Marietta, had been prepared, complete with a rope <gasps> and a table supplied by former Sheriff William Frey. The New York Times reported Frank was handcuffed, his legs tied at the ankles, and that he was hanged from a branch of a tree at around 7 p.m., facing the direction of the house where Mary Fagan had lived. After Frank's lynching, around half of Georgia's 3,000 Jews left the state. Damn. According, yeah, well, I mean, they were terrified. Yeah. According to author Steve Oney, quote, what it did to, su- to Southern Jews can't be discounted. They became even more assimilated, anti-Israel and Episcopalian, the temple did away with hoppas at weddings, anything that would draw attention. Mm. Many American Jews saw uh, Leo Frank as a victim of anti-Semitic persecution. Mm. There was another quote that I can't perfectly recite because I didn't put it in here, but it's uh, more recent about this case in the Washington Post. And uh, it's a female historian who was talking about how, like, you basically can't meet a neo-Nazi who doesn't know all about this case. Mm. And that that's, like, very Um. telling about why he was, like, prosecuted in the first place. Yeah, way to hang on to one case from 1914 in which the guy wasn't even convicted to try to justify your fucking anti-Semitism and racism. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Cool. Um, And the consensus of researchers on the subject is that Frank was wrongly convicted. 
Um, researcher Jeffrey Melnick wrote, quote, there is near unanimity around the idea that Frank was most certainly innocent of the crime of murdering Mary Fagan. Other historians and journalists, historians and journalists have written that the trial was, quote, a miscarriage of justice, a gross injustice, a mockery of justice, and that there can be no doubt, of course, that Frank was innocent, that Leo Frank was unjustly and wrongly convicted of murder, that he was falsely convicted, yada, yada, yada. Um, the evidence against him was shaky, to say the least. Like, these are tons of different historians who have all looked over the evidence of this case and have been like, fuck this shit. Mm. Um, uh, ba, ba, ba. And many of these authors believe that Conley was the actual murderer and was implicated by evidence overwhelmingly more incriminating than any produced against Frank. And he served one year. One year for being an accessory, essentially. Right. Critics cite a number of problems with the conviction, obviously. Local newspaper coverage, even before Frank was originally charged, all that leaked information to the, tr- to the press, um, and it was deemed to be inaccurate and prejudicial. So not only was it false, it was like super anti-Semitic shit that was being printed in some of these publications. Right. Some claimed that the prosecutor, Hugh Dorsey, was under pressure for a quick conviction because of recent unsolved murders and made a premature decision that Frank was guilty um, and then his personal ambition wouldn't allow him to reconsider it, so he just kept fighting any kind of appeal. Um, and later analysis of the evidence, primarily by Governor Slayton and Connolly's attorney, William Smith, seemed to exculpate Frank while implicating Conley. Mm. Um, after several attempts, Leo Frank was posthumously pardoned in 1986, and there's actually, like, a whole memorial and, like, historical site to him, um... Yeah, so people have in uh, long after his death kind of tried to make good, but this was some pretty fucked up shit. Yeah, I'd say so. And that's my case. What a parade! That's awful. <laughs> what parade? What could the parade. Possibly be about. Now I think it's dying ain't so bad. Important to look up yeah. parade I'm soundtrack. Yeah. I'm gonna Google it right parade now. Parade musical, musical songs. Yeah. Broadway cast recording. iTunes.com. Here we go. The dream of Atlanta. Yep. How can how I- can I call this home? <laughs> the picture show. I imagine that's got to be drunk Conley going to a movie. Yeah. That scene. Yep. Oh yeah, this is definitely about yeah. You you this case. It. Leo a rumbling and a rolling. <laughs> Leo at work. What if you totally didn't? And parade is about something completely different. You know, it wouldn't be that crazy. Well, I'm glad that we now know about this case. If it's like has such a historical significance, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, it's it has clear ties to modern neo Nazi bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was really. Uh, like there's so much about this case and I read a lot and it actually had to cut a lot, but there's a lot more in there. Like tons of shit about the trial that was really fucked up and basically just more reiteration of the mishandling of justice and the lack of evidence and them just being like, Nope, this fucking guy did it. Mm. There's a song called factory girls come up to my office. Oh my God. Ew. Oh, I see it. Yep. Yep. I see it. Yep. My child like will that. forgive me. Mm. Ooh, I like this one. That's what he said. <laughs> oh. Leo's statement, it's hard to speak my heart. Yeah, this is definitely about this case. Now I definitely want to watch Yeah, this. Blues Feel the Rainfall by Jim Conley and the Chain Gang. 
Oh, no. Oh, this is... Oh, no. I don't even know how to feel about this. It's not going to be good. All right. It's not going to be good. Well, special thanks. Oh, God. <laughs> good Lord. <laughs> thanks, Meg. Yeah, thanks a lot, Meg. I actually really oh. love this topic. So thank you. I did Sincerely, too. Meg Williams. This was a very genius topic. Uh, also, special thanks to Victoria Patterson. Mm. Give yourself a pat on the back Urson. for your support. Urson. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah Morrow. Good morrow, Sarah Mm. Morrow. There's no sorrow coming from your $5 a month. (laughs) Brandon Cook became a Patreon as a surprise Christmas present for their partner, Karina Sanchez. That's couple goals right there. Love is real. Thank you both. Debatable. Love is real. Next person. Also, great. Um, uh, Ida. What do you call okay. that O with the line to Ida Corshin Keelan? Mm, I don't know. Corsoon? Keelan? Corshin? Corshon? Keelan? The, your lack you of a pronunciation Norwegian. guide has me upset. Tucson talk. But I do love you just the same, Ida. Ida, Ida included a, Ida a pronunciation guide, but, you know, it's not my donation. Thank you very much. I don't know how to pronounce your fucking name. I don't name. fucking know. <laughs> Dallas Hoffland. Oh. Dallas. And that's Dallas. <laughs> Hardly newer. I hate you. Oh, my God. Shout out to Thank you, Just Caroline. Caroline. Sweet, sweet Caroline. Sweet Caroline. Caroline. I'm so sorry. Times, you must be so good. sick of that song. But we do so love good. Neil Diamond so over good. here. I'm sick so of good. that song. Thank you for your $5 a month. I'll never be sick of it. And thank you for your $5 a month, Anna Allen. Hashtag not all Allens. <laughs> You're crushing it. <laughs> Definitely not this Allen. <laughs> thank you to Jennifer Matarice. Maharisi. Oh. Um, Khaleesi. Is that how you say it? Matarise? It doesn't matterise. Yeah. It don't. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Bailey Stevens. I would like a cup of Bailey's. Oh, me too. That sounds really good right about now. Thank you, Bailey Stevens. I... Cannot wait to get tore up on white Russians at <gasps> your Christmas party, yes. Lucy. Lucy's mother oh makes the, so best the best white Russians, white Russians, and she knows that I love them. And so, literally, every time I come over, it doesn't matter if she it's like a hundred and ten degrees door. in July. She's like, "Do you uh-huh. need a white Russian? You need a white Russian." And then, like, goes off uh-huh. and ma- she greets you at the I door. Know. Yep. It's the best. Yep. Can confirm. And I feel like the older we get, the darker the mm-hmm. mix yep. gets, which means there's less crab. Less of the non-alcoholic yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I also love seeing these amazing increases. Shane Murphy, mm-hmm. you have increased your donation from two to five dollars, and we could not be more grateful. Thank you, Shane. Shane. It's a damn shame that we're not in the same room with you to give you a big old <laughs> hug. You're a shining inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Meredith Hagen. Hulk Hagen. Uh, 
Hagen. Hardly no. Oh, Hagen. Oh, hi, girl, Hagen. <laughs> Thank you for your $10 a month. You will be getting a free, flexible, fucking Patreon. Oh, yes. it's totally free, totally flexible. <laughs> As will. <laughs> Do not put it in the dishwasher. Allison <laughs> Hernandez. <laughs> Ooh, Addison. Allison. I got nothing. Um, Allison, hardly know. Her. I got nothing, you guys. <laughs> Crushed it. Bryn Fields, your supple fields abound with increased donation. Generosity. Thank you. You're a real Brynner. Yeah, you are. (laughs) We're tired. Thank you to our next trash queen, Cynthia Guzanato. Guzanoff. Guzanoff. Guzanya. Oh, Guzanya, Cynthia. Amazing. <laughs> oh, it's my turn. Laura Fuox. Yeah. Who knows? Thank you for that pronunciation guide. And also thank you mm. for your $25 once-off donation. Very few oxes would be as generous as you. Oh, very few oxes could afford $25 yeah. donated. We appreciate. That's always how I died on Oregon Trail. I just like ran mm-hmm. out of oxen. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're stuck. You live there now. <laughs> Bye. You're dead. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, special thanks to our amazing sponsor, Talkspace. Go to talkspace.com forward slash gals to get $45 off your first month of online therapy. Treat your treat. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kali Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod. If you have wine recommendations or creepy true crime stories to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you get your podcasts. More importantly, if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really is the best way to spread the word. We are a totally independent show, so if you'd like to support us and get a shout-out on air, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers! Hi, I'm Heather. And I'm Rhonda. And we're two wine-loving, psych-nerd, long-distance friends who host the podcast Wine Mind, where each episode we break down a psychology topic while getting buzzed on a bottle of wine. And sometimes we make up words. Have you ever poured back a few glasses of wine and found yourself wondering, why is wine so awesome? Why is it so hard to make friends in adulthood? What's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? If so, then Wine Mind is the podcast for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And check out our website at winemindpodcast.com. You can also find us on the social medias as at Wine Mind Podcast. So uncork a bottle and join us. Cheers! Cheers.